0: This is Craig Brown and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used in churches for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that passages will shine a unique light on the text used in the lectionary in the coming weeks. Today's passage is James chapter 3 verses 13 through chapter 4 verse 3 and then skipping ahead to verse 7 and the first half of verse 8. It is the lectionary reading for the 17th Sunday after the Pentecost, also known as proper number 20 in the year B cycle of the lectionary. It happens to be the lectionary reading for September 19, 2021. This particular text is really a continuation from last week's text that explored James chapter 3 verses 1 to 12. At this point, James really turns the attention more directly to some of the behaviors that are consuming the community to which he is writing. He begins by talking about foolishness as an uh, antithesis of being wise and that this foolishness is, first of all, evidenced by works and by works from a particular place we'll see here in a little bit. It really highlights verses 13 to 15 for us. So the first mark of foolishness is really false wisdom. In other words, those who would claim to have some sort of wisdom, claim to be wise, claim to be in places of authority and influence by virtue of their wisdom, well, that should actually be a warning sign that perhaps they don't. So throughout this section, the writer refuses to actually use the Greek word for wisdom in these first few verses. That word is sophia, and the writer refuses to use it, uses a different word in these particular contexts just to highlight the fact that the thing that many of these foolish people call wisdom really isn't wisdom at all. The text starts with a rhetorical question, verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? In other words, who would step up and say, of course, I'm wise or I'm understanding? And James's response is, let that person show it by their good behavior, in their deeds, in the gentleness of of wisdom. It's a rhetorical question. Who among you is wise and understanding? And here's how you can tell. Let that person show it by good behavior in deeds that are born in the gentleness of wisdom. Gentleness of wisdom. And the writer goes on in verse 14, says, but if you have jealousy and selfish ambition. So here comes the foolishness. This bitter jealousy, as the New American Standard Bible translates it, is really more word, a word more like uh, rivalry or kind of harsh zeal. Uh, it's kind of a divisive spirit, and it really goes with this selfish ambition, which is the second vice outlined in verse 14. This selfish ambition uh, is used in other Greek writings of the ancient world to point to those who aspire to political power. And in this particular case, it's those who aspire to power and influence, but its best translation would be a party spirit, Now, by party spirit, we don't mean like revelry, like someone likes to go to a great party. In this particular context, the party has to do more with the notion of ideology or like we think of political parties. It's a party spirit. In other words, it's a spirit that tries to gather alliances or put people together or gather people around a particular opinion or point of view. James says that these are two marks of the fool. Bitter jealousy, which is like rivalry or harsh zeal, or selfish ambition— which is that party spirit. And what it does is it's an arrogance, if you will, an arrogance that reveals a very denial of the truth that comes from God. Foolish leaders lead astray, and they lead astray out of hubris, that they are not from God. In verse 15, the writer says, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is, and then there's three descriptors here, earthly, natural, and then demonic, earthly, natural, and de- not demonic. It's a descending set of adjectives that terminates with the devil or a demonic influence of some kind. So if both bitter jealousy and selfish ambition exist, then the effect of that is clear enough in verse 16 that there is disorder and every evil thing. So what the writer James is telling us is see not just the works, look at the fruit of those works as well. See what happens. It's cause and effect. So when we see disorder in every evil thing, we know somewhere there are those leaders and those leaders who have gathered people out of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And the key passageway here is this for us, that behaviors are consistent with character. Words may not be behaviors are consistent with character. In other words, the behaviors and the fruit of those behaviors are the evidence of inner character. It is unavoidable, regardless of words. Those who embody these very things, this earthly, natural, demonic sort of presence that kind of has this fruit that's born in disorder and every evil thing, they are what they are and that there's no way to disguise that, and there's no way to hide it. Remember, behaviors are consistent with character. The writer now moves into verses 17 and 18 to close out this third chapter in James, and it's really about the virtue of wisdom, and that wisdom is vindicated by works from God, whereas foolishness is revealed in the works that come from, according to the writer, the devil, Wisdom is vindicated by works that come from God. Now the writer employs the word Sophia, the classic Greek word for wisdom, since it comes from above. Remember, you've seen this in this text where it says the wisdom that comes above or not from above. This is kind of a a Johannine or a a John type of theology that we find embedded in John's writings, in the Gospel of John, the letters of John, even in the, the Revelation of John, those attributed to John. It's very much this Johannine theology of things that come from above. So we begin to gather at this point in James quite clearly that this was written after both Paul's theology and John's theology had come to some maturity. So many scholars think that James probably wasn't written until sometime in the first half of the second century. In other words, 100 CE to maybe 150 CE. This appeal to wisdom kind of intersects Greek and Jewish thought. And this is the beauty of James, that James is written in a Greek-speaking world but within a Jewish culture. And in this kind of cultural frame, we see that the the value of wisdom from the Greeks who personify wisdom in Sophia, whereas the Jews engage in this deeper form of wisdom as an expression of mysticism, this gaining of an understanding that comes from God alone. And that the writer tells us here in this very sophisticated couple of verses that Sophia or wisdom has a set of marks to it in contrast to the marks that come from the devil in the verses we just read. this The marks of this Sophia or wisdom are pure, peace-loving, gentle, reasonable, full of good fruits, impartial, free of hypocrisy. You see how these words contrast. And that's what this is. This is a an ancient form of of Jewish writing with kind of in the the Hebraic or Hebrew uh, system of parallelism where you compare and contrast two things. We've talked about the works of the fool, the works of the wise, laying them against each other like this. So this is a classic writing technique of, of Jewish writers in the ancient world. And what we learn here is that humility is the driver of the wise. So the truth is, is that purity, peace-loving, gentle, reasonable, full of good fruits, impartial, free of hypocrisy. These virtues are not really valued in worldly systems. What's valued oftentimes in community is division, party, opinion, judgment. These things were valued in the community to which James is writing. And that this wisdom that comes from God beckons the believer to do something else. And it's to cultivate peace internally and externally. In other words, no drama. The the residue of this person of peace is in verse 18, that the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And the key passageway is here for us, that the person of peace leaves a residue of peace. Behaviors are consistent with God. In other words, foolishness points to the self. But wisdom points to God, who alone gives wisdom. The person of peace, in other words, the person in wisdom manifests that in humility, and the residue they leave behind is peace. And that their behaviors are consistent with the very character and nature of who God is. So as chapter 4 opens, the writer now... Is, puts another rhetorical question to the community to whom the writer is addressing this. It's in verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? This is a divided community embittered against each other. And the question is timely, let's be honest. What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? I mean, just jumping out of this text for a minute into 21st century uh, United States uh, culture and world, I mean... Could there be any more direct commentary about our politics, about the pandemic, about the state of the United Methodist Church? Perhaps this text, if we look at it closely, may tell us something very important. What is the cause of all these quarrels and conflicts among you within that community to whom James is writing and to us? Well, clearly stated, what we find is that in verse 1, the writer says, is the source not your pleasures that wage war in your body parts? Let's take that sentence apart just for a minute. It talks about pleasures. Yes, pleasures. And these pleasures are are not recreation. They're rather the indulgence of ego, arrogance, swagger, hubris, being overly opinionated. And that these pleasures, these indulgences of self wage war. It's such strong imagery and it's unusual imagery we find here. We only find imagery like this in some of Paul's writings where he talks about the the conflict between the flesh and the spirit in Galatians and even a little bit in Ephesians. There's a strong imagery here, this militaristic lens, waging war. And you'll see by the end of chapter four that the war that's being waged in this sense is between the devil and God is the way James frames it. So this militaristic lens becomes important for us because what James is going to offer us is a very dualistic ethic. In other words, a dualism. There are two forces at work within us and that we are pitted in this uh, battle, if you will, that is waged within us. Exactly what kind of Paul talks about in his letters and writings. And then the last part of that sentence, the Body's parts. In other words, it's the pleasures that wage war against our body's part. This is that word soma again that we talked about last week, and it's a kind of a mixed metaphor. The word soma is the word for body in Greek, and it's a mixed metaphor because it's hard to tell whether the writer's referring to the individual body or to the corporate body. So it's hard to take this apart to some degree, but it is a, a Pauline concept. In other words, a concept that flows out of the Apostle Paul's theology. And what Paul suggests is, can members of the body ever be at war with each other? Well, of course not. We read about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13, and James may not have these particular texts in mind, but the theological root of them is quite clear, that within this community to whom James is writing, the, the body is at war with itself. And when that happens, it's indicative that this community has ceased to see each other as God does, and they have ceased to to see the image of God in each other, as we looked at in James chapter 2. And so he basically offers this evaluation in the opening verses of chapter 3. It begins in verse 2. It says, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. Again, strong language. So see the formula laid out in phrase after phrase, beginning at verse 2. Lust yields nothing. It equals murder. Envy yields nothing. And it equals fighting and quarreling. Asking God yields nothing because of wrong motives. This formulaic way in which the writer describes this is very reminiscent of some of the prophets uh, in uh, Jewish scripture, particularly the prophet uh, uh, Haggai, who talks about how you, you go off and earn money, but you put it into a purse with holes. In other words, you go off to do work that gets you nothing for it. So basically, the writer's suggesting that these works that are practiced in this community yield no result. And so because of it, there's murder and fighting and quarreling. There's a lot of debate among scholars about why that word murder is used in verse 2. It could be a metaphor, if you will, for the ways in which we um, destroy the very humanity of other people within communities when we behave in this manner. See, the asking... In this case, the asking is only about enriching ego, arrogance, swagger, hubris and opinion. And that kind of asking receives nothing. And so the key passageway here is this: That which drives us to prayer remember that's the asking, that which drives us to prayer is more important than that we that what we pray for. That which drives us to prayer is more important than what we pray for. You see, this is the essence of praying in Jesus' name, if you will. Are we driven to prayer as a person of peace, seeking the wisdom that comes from above? Or are we just trying to seek what we need for our party spirit, our ego, our arrogance, our swagger, hubris, opinion? Perhaps prayer changes the one praying more than the actual situation or circumstance they're praying about. So as we skip forward to verses 7 and 8 in this lectionary reading, it, we have to take note we skip some verses here. Uh, namely, we skipped verses 4 to 6. These are important verses, and to be honest, the lectionary disappoints from time to time by omitting these particular verses. Because what they do is they make explicit the kind of war, this militaristic language the writer is using... Between God and the world, and the world in this case being the devil, it is absolutely worth reading. It is born out of, again, Johannine theology or the theology of John. Verse 6 is the key. It's something so important that I think we cannot miss when we look at this particular passage. It says, but he, God, gives a greater grace. Wow, what an important statement in James. It's so important. I I wish it was in the lectionary, but it's not. It's key to this section. God gives a greater grace, greater than war. So what is this greater grace about? Well, that's verses 7 and 8. So the advice is very clear, deliberate, and imperative. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Come close to God. God draws close to you. See, the key here is humility. Humility to seek the wisdom that comes from God. That means we have to empty, be emptied, of ego, arrogance, swagger, hubris, opinion. Because all those things point to self. All those things point to self. Submit to God. Only God has the Sophia we need. In other words, that wisdom. This is the the Sophia is personified, that's part of the Greek thought and culture but that the Sophia is possessed by God and that the way we pursue that is in a very mystical fashion that's quintessentially Jewish. So we need to hear both of these threads telling us that only God has the Sophia, the wisdom we need. Those who have it, have it because they submit to God. you see the word submit? That word submit is so important. It's the exact opposite of what we've been reading about through this text Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition—none of those have to have mission. They all have to do with aspiration and attainment and striving and taking and getting and having. The text is telling us clearly that if we submit to God, that submission is the key, and we resist the devil. That's what this community is being invited to do: resist the devil. That the, in a sense, the way James describes that the devil's work is to somehow keep the focus and attention away from the divine wisdom and to keep it on our own sense of wisdom. This is a battle that is cosmic. It's not just fleshly, it's cosmic. And so the key passageway here for us is this, is that the person of peace humbles themselves before God and others. Now this isn't to say that we become a doormat, That is another lesson for another day. But I have to be honest that we're so eager at times to defend our human dignity that we fail to hold this tension well. Imagine holding two ends of a rubber band. That we get so interested in defending our own human dignity that we fail to hold this other tension that we must humble ourselves before God and others, empty ourselves of arrogance, swagger, hubris, even opinion at times, that we become what comes at the end of chapter three described as being more impartial, free of hypocrisy, full of mercy, these types of things. The person of peace humbles themselves before God and others. That's it for this week. Many thanks to the Reverend Deborah Brady, the fantastic people at the First United Methodist Church of Modesto. They're using this podcast as part of their sermon series on the book of James. I hope you're blessed by passages as you prepare to receive the sermon this coming Sunday. A personal note, I am preaching at the First United Methodist Church of Modesto on September 12 on the passage, that passage we covered last week, James chapter 3, 1 to 12. And I'll be preaching on this passage of scripture on September the 19th at the First United Methodist Church in Lodi, California. So my thanks to the Reverend George Ed Bennett, and I'll be with his congregation then. For now, I bid you all grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.